Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, Undying Light listeners. This is your host, Pastor Alex, and as always, it's another new episode. Unless you're listening to this one again, uh, which I, I guess you can do that. Uh, I, I always say that because it's like, oh yeah, new episode, new episode, and then it's like, but wait a minute, some people actually listen to these maybe once or twice or two or three times, I guess. So, anywho's new episode as I record it, and fresh content for those who are patron subscribers as this will come out sometime towards the middle or end of October, I think. And it's the middle-ish end of September. So we've got uh, the fourth chapter in our book uh, that we are going to skim through today. And again, these are about, uh, oh, 30 pages long of discussion between the Lutheran and Reformed faith. Uh, we'll find a lot of similarities and some differences in today's show on the election and bondage of the will. So this book is, again, between Wittenberg and Geneva, and we've noted that in the show notes. So if you uh, want to pick this up and read all of the extensive lines, uh, paragraphs, then do so, and that will help formulate uh, your position even better if you coming from the Lutheran perspective or the Reformed perspective. And then what you can do is, uh, take these separate chapters and then dive into the theological writings from either theological camp, whatever you're Lutheran or Reformed, and you can explore that at a deeper rate. Now, I am always the first to admit, and I know many other Lutherans would say the same thing, there is no systematic theology to the Lutheran faith. We uh, explain the text and we acknowledge those theological doctrines, but we don't have this large volume or four volume book set that systematizes our theology so to track down everything that luther did uh, or believed in uh, you'll have to read a lot of his writings and readings but for many lutherans we start in the book of concord and we work ourselves through from there Uh, and that's where we can answer a lot of our questions on theology and whether we would side with uh, the reformed in particular situations or not and then we would 
hopefully be able to work through uh, other doctrines that Luther or Philip Melanchthon wrote or later Lutheran theologians would write about. So that is uh, the crux of the show, basically, as we are going to look at uh, today's topic on election and the bondage of the will. Now, Luther wrote a book called The Bondage of the Will, and it is... It is a, an extensive book, but it's an argument against a particular person. And in that book, Luther is arguing against the freedom of the will. And he is saying that you are bound to the sinful nature of the human flesh. And, but, you know, and, and he would also parlay that with saying, yes, this is what your flesh will do, this is what your will will end up doing. But this isn't your designation when it comes to Christ. You have been justified and made righteous in the eyes of Christ, despite what your flesh does in this world. So let's dig into it and uh, see where we go. Election and bondage of the will. Any Christians who reflect on the question of salvation will soon find themselves raising a number of related issues. How does the certainty, uh, creaturely status of human beings affect how they act in this world? What impact does their sinful nature have on the ability to make decisions? And what is the relationship between eternal God's plan of salvation and the execution of that plan in history? The church first wrestled in death with these matters in the so-called Pelagian controversy in the 5th century, when the great bishop of Hippo in North Africa, of Hippo in North Africa, uh, Augustine clashed with the with a British monk Pelagius, and then with Pelagius' numerous followers, debating the nature of salvation. At stake were a number of issues, such as the nature of human freedom, the understanding of the biblical references of election and predestination, and the impact of the fall on the subsequent humanity and the definition of grace. Debates and discussions on these matters long outlived Augustine and continued through the Middle Ages, and has become a topic at hand with Luther. This this concept uh, that Pelagian uh, would go on to assert, which would then uh, be more formulated and contrived with the Arminian camp, who would follow Jacob Arminius, would argue that we have some say in our salvation. We have some leverage or some... Uh, ability to attest to earning salvation based upon our merits or good works and or behavior. Whereas uh, the Reformed and Luther would say, no, <laughs> we don't. We are, we are locked and bound by sin and only God is uh, sovereign in salvation. So uh, here we go, election and bondage from the Lutheran tradition uh, his scholastic instructors at the University of Effort taught Martin Luther that he could earn significant grace and make his imperfect word works count for the merit of God's sight if he only uh, would seek out to do his best. Gabriel Bale, the University of Tubingen professor, had taught Luther's instructors held that God's that the that God actually gives the initial grace to those who do what is in them. Or they do what they can. Luther found that his own will was too weak to do this 
at his best of times and so became convinced that he did not have any of God's grace. His instructors largely shaped by one stream of thought of William of Ockham also maintained that the will controls human activity and identity. Luther's own experience convinced him that the sinner's will, active through it though it is, is bound to turn away from God to the false gods. So here we go with the uh, famous Luther letter to Erasmus. This would be then now what's called the bondage of the will. When uh, Desterius Erasmus sought an issue on which to distinguish his own position from Luther's and thus ward off the Roman Catholic attacks on his own reform program, he chose Luther's insistence that the will is bound. Erasmus had treated this issue seldom and lightly in previous works and generally had emphasized God's grace in granting salvation to sinners. He also shared fears that the idea of complete abandonment of any freedom accorded to the human will would result in libertarianism and a breakdown of moral order. Erasmus chose to attack Luther in the form of academic disputation, which he had practiced only seldom in contrast to Luther, who knew how well uh, knew well how to engage critics in the forum. Luther thanked Erasmus for his choice of the topic. It is not irrelevant, inquisitive, or superficious, but essentially salutary and necessary for a Christian to find out whether the will does anything or nothing in the matters pertaining to eternal salvation. This is the cardinal issue between us, the point on which everything in this controversy runs. So I, I will let you go and actually read uh, Luther's Bondage of the Will if you have a desire to read more of that back and forth debate that uh, Luther expounds upon. But we will continue here on the bound choice and his reaction to the storm of attacks from the papal supporters that had uh, greeted his 95 theses on indulgences. Luther wrote in 1521 that after the fall of Adam or after the commission of the actual sin, free will exists only in name. And when it does what it can, as Baal had asserted, it is actively committing sin. So this was the Lutheran position that once the fall had happened, once sin had taken its it had taken its place in history, once the act of sin had occurred, that is when the concept of free will has become only the you know name. It, it, there's no longer any relevancy to it today. However, uh, there are many who would like to argue that you know you can still assert your will in achieving whatever it is that uh, God may have for you. And you may w- work it out or be a good person and behave morally or, or ethically. In fact, Luther would even go to the extent to reject ethics entirely in his teaching because of the nature that ethics arise from. And Luther would go on to attack uh, Aristotle and his morality in terms of how many theologians would assert that you, uh, in order to be a theologian, you must read and learn from Aristotle. And Luther argued against that, saying, no, the the authority of the theologian comes from Scripture, not Aristotle. So uh, more fascinating things, uh, Jahard Ferdi wrote uh, a, a chapter on Lutheran ethics 
There's not a lot of content out there in terms of how Luther approached ethics, but there are some writings, uh, the Luther's writings uh, and appeals to the ruling class and the nobility that has got a lot of the ethics of the church and how he determines what the church should be like and how it should be different from the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, But all of these things, when I I talk about ethics, because it is uh, essentially an assertion of one's will to do good in order for something to happen, and Luther would flat out reject that saying, you'll always go to sin. You will always chase sin when you try to do something good because it'll always become a selfish manner or some sort of uh, some sort of, you know, internal self-gratification or whatever it may be. Anyways, I digress. So lots of things out there that you can go read, but, uh, you know, and, and feel free to DM me if you have questions and I can point you to those resources. Therefore, on the bound choice is, first of all, a discourse in the nature of the creator. In line with Okamist convictions of his instructors, Luther presented God as almighty and absolute in power. Nothing in his creation can hinder or redirect his will and keep him from achieving what he wills. Luther writes this, For the will of God is effectual and cannot be impeded since it is the power of God's nature itself. Moreover, it is wise so that it cannot do something wrong. Now, if his will is not impeded, there is nothing to prevent the work itself from being done. In the place, time, and manner measure that he himself both foresees and wills. If the will of God were such that when what he is doing was completed, what he had accomplished will remain, but the will stopped functioning, as in the case of the human will, which ceases to will when the house is wanted, when the house is wanted built just as it comes to an end in death, then it could be truly said that things happen contingently and mutably. However, the opposite is the case. God completes what he is doing and his will continues to function. So Luther continues on the bound choice, uh, writing this in the year of his death in regards to the term absolute necessity. He says this, I wish I could wish indeed that another or better word had been introduced into our discussion than the usual one, necessity, which is not rightly applied either to the divine or to the human will. It is too harsh and incrugious a a meaning for this purpose, for it suggests a kind of compulsion and the very opposite of willingness. Although the subject under discussion implies no such thing, for neither the divine nor the human will does what it does, whether good or evil, under any compulsion, but from sheer pleasure or desire, as with true freedom, and yet the will of God is immutable and infallible, and it governs our mutable will, as Bothesis writes, remaining fixed, you make all things move. And our will, especially when it is evil, cannot of itself do good. The reader's intelligence must therefore supply with that what the word necessity does not express by understanding it to mean what you call the immutability of the will of God and the impudence of our evil will. So that some have called the necessity of immutability though it is not good or grammatically or theologically. 
So Luther again has uh, you know is slightly long-winded when he is expounding various constructs, but um, there there is a lot of commonality between Luther and the Reformed in this particular position. Uh, and Luther has all sorts of comments that he has written in on the bound choice and the bondage of the will. And there's a lot of writings just in this chapter that he gives itself directly, but we, for time's sake, can't visit all of them. So that's why I encourage you to go and grab this book because it is a wonderful book and probably one of the most fascinating books I've read this year. And I, and I hope you would be edified by it, even if you're not a Lutheran, but you'd be able to read it and, and, and see where Luther came from and why we as Lutherans believe what we believe. So even if you're not Lutheran, it is a great book for you to start to get the basic premises of the Lutheran theology. So Luther on predestination, placing God in complete control, not only human impudence, clear also, but made it uh, clear that God alone is active in restoring sinners from their rebellious and condemned existence. Jesus Christ stands at the center of that restoration. Luther insisted, but the re creation of the sinner into a child of God's rest on God's plan shaped before the creation of the universe. Ephesians 1 4 predestination was a word under discussion among scholastic theologians in the 1510s. Two features marked its usage. It designated the whole will of God or the whole of God's pro- providing care for his creation, not only as provision, of the gift of salvation. Its significance was weakened by scholastic theologians who, when applying it specifically to salvation, diluted its definition to fit more in a semi-Pelagian path not uh, than pleasing God. Coupled with that, Luther encountered increasing distress and despair from followers who feared that they had not been predestined for salvation. Even in those passages on, on, in Onbound Choice, that strongly suggests a doctrine of double predestination, Luther was not endeavoring to speak of God's responsibility for sinners' rejection of his word and lordship. In this work, as in others, he interpreted 1 Timothy 2.4 as an affirmation that Christ died to atone for the sins of all, even though his translation of this passage in the German Bible he rendered salvation as a reference to temporal blessings. Thus, the promise of forgiveness and new life of Christ should be proclaimed to all. So that is another, that's a minor to slightly major difference between the Lutheran uh, view and the Reformed view. Uh, there is the concept of uh, limited atonement in the Reformed circles where uh, this concept that Christ died only for the elect. His death was only efficacious for the elect. It was only good enough to cover the sins of the elect. Well, Luther and Lutherans believe that he died for all people because that's the death of God and the blood of Christ being the blood of God was shed to cover all sins across the world. However, we do not fall into the trap of universalism because we also assert that not all will forgive him. And we, we Lutherans would essentially reject the limited atonement function while rejecting irresistible grace because we would assert that grace is resistible because many do not follow 
and believe in Christ. And so those people, even though their sins would have been forgiven had they turned and believed, have hardened their hearts and have rejected the graces of God. So that's a significant difference uh, between uh, Lutherans and the Reformed. And so we've got uh, the Strasbourg dispute, but we won't get into that, unfortunately, for today's show. But we've got uh, a few things here left to touch base on the formula of concord on God's gracious election. We covered this pretty extensively uh, in the Book of Concord episode, so go back and listen to that. Uh, So let's look at the election and bondage of the will and the Reformed tradition. Given the fact that both Lutheran and Reformed share common commitment to the notion of salvation by grace through faith alone, it is not surprising that they also share considerable uh, common ground on this conceptual foundations of that of that doctrine. Although the issue of the Reformed faith is not a single classic as uh, famous as Martin Luther's on the bondage of the will, the same basic anti-Pelagian themes are a vital part of the Reformed theology as a whole. If salvation is by grace, then the unilateral action of God and the basic passivity of the human will and the act of justification are points that both communions share. On this matter, of course, Neither Lutheran nor Reformed offer ideas that are particularly innovative. The basic perimeters of discussion are set in the anti-Pelagian controversy in the 4th and 5th centuries, where the Reformers introduced a new dimension to the issue with the connection made between predestination and assurance, not in the basic substance of the Church's specific teachings on the doctrine. Nevertheless, it is arguable that from the middle of the 16th century, Debates about human will and predestination became more and more a characteristic of the Reformed faith in a manner representing a different overall uh, dogmatic experience than, and at points different confessional conclusions from those of the later Lutherans. So remind yourself, pay attention here to that difference. The, a, a significant level of difference will come when discussing the predestination and assurance, there's a big thing, and I've noticed this continuously when speaking to Reformed folk and coming from the Reformed camp myself. Assurance is a topic that it is hotly contested, and and, and, and even more so predestination tied to that is a hotly t- uh, debated topic. And I say that because the Reformed, and, and I'm just going to broadly strike this here. I'm not going to dive into particulars, but in my experience, the Reformed will will pu- push to have you demonstrate your fruit in order to say to show that you're a Christian. They would go to the extent to say that unless you demonstrate fruit, how can you have assurance? And they will do this in the in the construct of you should uh, demonstrate your fruit to your neighbor, which would be those who are essentially trying to uh, police your fruit. And you need to do it for the assurance of yourself. So you need to uh, demonstrate to yourself that you're a Christian by the works that you do, which so you would be turning inward, whereas Lutherans would be, no, we don't look at our fruit we don't look at our good works. We look at the finished work of Jesus Christ and we look to the promises wrapped up there. 
So a significant difference between these two camps just in that construct. So predestination in the early Reformed churches, predestination with its uh, corollary and the importance of human will for salvation was unexceptional doctrine for the early early Reformed churches. In 1530, for example, Zwingli submitted his ratio fidele to the emperor at the Diet of Augsburg, professing both his belief in the absolute predetermining sovereignty of God and the inability of human beings to move toward God in faith because of the depravity of their fallen wills. The doctrine of God as sovereign and therefore determinative of all that happens in the doctrine of the human will as bound by sin after Adam chose to eat the fruit and stand side by side. This is perhaps one point of distinction between the Luther on the bondage of the will, the emphasis on the decisive role of the human will in the articulation in the matter of predestination. Luther arguably roots his understanding in the matter of his doctrine of God, the fall and subsequent importance of the human will play in the important role in the early Reformed formulations. Thus, the first Helvetic Confession in 1536, the writers did not recoil from using the terminology of free will, but gave it a distinct meaning. Here's what Article 9 on free will states. They say, Wherefore we intend attribute to man free will, as we who experience knowingly and wanting to do good and evil, to be sure... We are able to do evil willingly, but we are not able to embrace and follow good except as we are illuminated by the grace of Christ moved by his Holy Spirit. For God is the one who works in us both to will and to perform according to his good pleasure. Also, our salvation comes from God, but from ourselves comes perdition. So, I would also like to make this note uh, on this construct that uh, Luther, uh, the, the Reformed and Lutheran will, will differ on the construct of predestination in the form of double predestination. Lutherans reject that notion that God is actively out to damn people to hell, even though the Reformed would say that's exactly what Romans 9 is talking about. And I did a Bible study uh, through Romans for the church and for patrons. And when we got to Romans 9, we we crossed the bridge by saying that this couldn't possibly be a broad stroke to fit every single person who doesn't believe. But that God can and has and does throughout time raise up certain people for certain events like Pharaoh to demonstrate his uh, grace, mercy, and wrath in the book of Exodus, as he has nations throughout the Old Testament to bring judgment to Israel, yes, God has indeed raised up certain peoples to fulfill part of his will. However, Lutherans would not say that Romans 9 is talking instinctively about all people at all time. So that's a big con- that's another big difference between the Lutheran and the Reformed on predestination is whether we accept double predestination. So the predestination, the Reformed uh, theology, the notion that Calvin is the theologian of predestination par excellence or that he was morbidly obsessed with the doctrine is a commonplace amongst those who have never read him and probably refused to do so precisely on those grounds. Certainly, the issue was of great significance to him. 
early in his career, the basic elements of his predestination were already present as clear in his catechism in 1537. Original sin, the power of human depravity over the will leading to total moral inability to move toward God and thus the need for decisive sovereignty intervention on God's part. That gracious intervention is rooted in God's predestining will. We then turn to the Institutes, and this is Calvin's approach, is more circumspect than his reputation might uh, suggest. The doctrine is introduced in 1559 edition of the Institutes, along uh, after the discussion of Christology as a meaning of explaining why the gospel is is not preached with equal power to all. In this context, Calvin points to Christ himself as being the greatest example of election because of the divine freedom and sovereignty demonstrated in his coming as the incarnate mediator. In the very head of the church, we have a bright mirror of free election. Least it should give any trouble to us members that he did, that he did not become the son of God by living righteously, but was freely presented with this great honor that we that he might afterwards make others partakers of these gifts. When reflecting on how individuals become partakers of salvation, that is in Christ, Calvin points to the role of the Holy Spirit and makes it clear that the Spirit only works savingly in those whom God have chosen first to eternal life. This is why the gospel is not preached equally to all. Beyond the efficiency of the preaching of the word lies the eternal decision of God to apply the word to some by the Holy Spirit and not to others. So that is Calvin's position again, it, and it continues on. Um, we get to Herman Bavinick. Uh, the position is articulated a little bit further, and probably in the uh, Reformed camps would would more or less be attracted to his. Uh, he regards both supra and infralapsarianism as reducing the complexity of God's sovereignty over creation and salvation to categories that are too simplistic to do justice to the intricate testimony of the scripture on these matters. That kind of sounds a little familiar. And I, I got into a debate a good with a good friend of mine. I'm not going to say names. If they listen to this show, then they probably know who they are. But we got into the discussion about the Lutheran position on the Lord's Supper and how these terms would try to condense the work and nature of God to merely acting within a certain position uh, on the construct of like the Lord's Supper, for instance, that we reject uh, transubstantiation and substantiation. Uh, we reject those terms. We reject the fact that uh, scholastic theologians outside of the Lutheran camp have tried to apply these movements to the Lutheran faith. And we've rejected all of it. So, again, uh, it's okay if the reformers do it, but boy, if Lutherans do it, we get we get uh, a bunch of flack. But I digress, and I'm joking. For those, it's good that both camps can see that these terms oftentimes try to create or construct a very narrow view of the way God operates. And again, that goes back to this notion of us trying to put God into these confines under the law that he can only operate in and under and with certain expectations. And then we draw upon scripture to make ourselves feel good about it. And we fail to recognize that God will often uh, exceed or break out of those bounds, depending on whatever topic we're trying to cover. So in conclusion to all of this, 
let's finish this episode out. Despite a common caricature of Calvinism, the Reformed have no particular obsession with the doctrine of predestination. The Reformed tradition, like Luther, stands within the bounds of Augustinian anti-Pelagianism in its emphasis on the sovereignty of God in creation, providence, and election. It also exhibits some intraconfessional diversity on the matter in terms of double predestination versus single predestination and supra versus infralapsarianism. Also, as with Luther, the Reformed see this as a crucial to assurance. If salvation is not all of God, there can be no assurance. Yet, the Reformed do differ from Lutherans in maintaining the doctrine of preservation of the saints through the emphasis on the inseparability of the elements in order of the order of salvation is grounded in the doctrine of divine election and as cumulated, consumulated in glory. This point is significant because it, uh, but perhaps more for the connection between preaching and pastoral practice than for our understanding of God's sovereignty. On the latter point, Lutherans and reforms are in agreement. So that wraps out the show. Again, I brought out certain things that the chapter doesn't necessarily dig into uh, because there are some constructs to which the Lutherans and the Reformed do differ on these, but we we differ in, in, in a few different layers that weren't necessarily described in this particular chapter. However, go grab the book, read, and you'll you'll get a better understanding of what is going on between the two camps. Next week, we will look at justification and sanctification as we reach week five. Uh, then we will look at baptism. That'll be a great one. Even though we've done an episode on baptism, we will see it through the eyes of Zwingli and Calvin and the Reformed tradition as opposed to the Lutherans, as well as baptism of infants. Then we'll move on to the Lord's Supper, digging through those. Uh, these will be more of an expounding nature to those episodes on the four types of each of the baptism in the Lord's Supper. So we will dig into those uh, uh, in a couple of weeks. So thanks for tuning in. Uh, I am so happy that you've made it this far in the show. So please uh, check out our Friday shows. We will be working, by the time this one airs, we'll be working through probably uh, one of the Gospels, either Matthew or Mark or Luke, one of the three synoptic Gospels. And we will be working through the text and talking about the text in greater uh, accumulation to moving into the book of Acts. So we will set our foundation in the, the life and works and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ before moving into the book of Acts. So tune in on Friday and check out those shows. The Tuesday ones probably won't continue on. Uh, I'm just getting to a point where once I conclude this, the, these topics we will probably go back to just a Friday show. We may make it a little bit longer since we'll be going through the gospel accounts. So uh, I would say check those out, and I hope you guys are enjoying this series. So please, if you do leave some feedback, follow the show, share, subscribe, leave leave reviews, all that sort of stuff if you can. So thanks for tuning in. God bless. We I hope you have a great week. I'll see you later.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 